Welcome to the Pair Program from Hatchpad, the podcast that gives you a front row seat to candid conversations with tech leaders from the startup world. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, the creator of Hatchpad. And I'm your other host, Mike Ruin. Join us each episode as we bring together two guests to dissect topics at the intersection of technology, startups, and career growth. Hey, what's up, everyone? We are back for another episode of The Pair Program. I am your host, Tim Winkler, accompanied by my co-host, Mr. Mike Gruen. Mike, how are you? Doing great. How about yourself? Good. Have you taken your Claritin today? No, actually, uh, I've been been all right this season so far. Although I did. It's funny that you asked because I just picked up my Allegra last night while I was at CVS. So you're Um, the only one that hasn't been impacted by the... I I haven't gotten outside in a while, so maybe that's it, except for to go to the store. But yeah, anyway. Okay. <laughs> Seems to be the conversation point of every person I talk to during spring uh, in this area. Um, cool. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about today's episode. So today's episode, we are going to be discussing startup equity. Um, you know, we're going to simplify how it works, explain a little bit more about how folks value it, um, how to negotiate it. Um, obviously, a very relevant topic for you know, anyone currently working in a startup or considering working for a startup. We've got some great guests for us uh, to talk about this topic today. We've got uh, Ryan and Nate. Uh, you all have a, a wealth of experience in this area. So thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Of course. Of course. Um, cool. So before we dive into the discussion in, in true uh, pair program form, we do like to kick things off with a fun segment we call Pair Me Up. Pair, pair Me Up. That's a good here. Pair, pair Me Up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We'll do it twice. Um, so, all right, do it three times. So here's where we all go around the room and we kind of shout out a complimentary pairing. Mike, uh, go ahead and kick us off with with your pairing. Yeah, trying to uh, change it up a little bit. Uh, I'm going with uh, cats and cardboard boxes because there's nothing more entertaining to a cat than like a cardboard box and just jumping in and out. We have three cats. Um, we actually have sitting in our um, living room this like box from the christmas tree like this giant box that's kind of like a coffin and the only reason we haven't thrown it out is because our cats seem to like going in and out of it and it's kind of fun to watch so that's <laughs> in cardboard boxes we're so, easily entertained i guess I, i've heard of something called netflix i think that that's also <laughs> supposed to be entertaining but like so it's just watching cats jump in and out of boxes <laughs> so any <laughs> listeners from PETA, um mike gruen go ahead and include your address and <laughs> where you where you torture these animals i didn't um, bury the box it's just you know <laughs> um okay good stuff uh cats and boxes i'm gonna i'm gonna go with um sipping bourbon and being outdoors um so i'm kind of coming off of a a recent you know bachelor party trip to the bourbon capital of the world in louisville so bourbon is fresh on my mind right now and have a nice bottle of E.H. Taylor small batch uh, oh, in the liquor one. cabinet waiting. Oh, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> it is it's very good. Uh, you just got it from like the Buffalo Trace Distillery. And, um, you know, we took a little bit with us going golfing. But honestly, I think if, you know, you take it hiking, camping, skiing, something about being outdoors with it just tastes a little bit better and just makes the activity that much more enjoyable. So that's um, that's my pairing. Um, Let's kick it over to Nate. Nate, maybe a quick intro uh, on yourself and then uh, your pairing. I'm Nate and and I uh, work in product at Palolo. I'm head of product over there. 
Um, and I was thinking about my pairing. I have been missing the chance to take a vacation because we're like gearing up to launch our MVP in the next few weeks. And it's just, you know, not the time. Um, but after that, I'm going to take a little time off. And I think a great pairing is uh, sort of touching, touching on your point, getting outside, uh, listen to the rain, like hit the pine trees. We've got a lot of pine trees here in the Pacific Northwest, maybe a little covered porch, just kind of sit there, drink a little bit of coffee, drink maybe a little bit of bourbon. Be real nice. Mm, nice. Like that. Do you ever um, experiment with like white noise when you sleep? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a passionate yeah. fan of white noise. I, it just it just songs me out. Yeah. Rain, rain and thunderstorms uh-huh. are my go to right now. It's super relaxing. Um, cool. Ryan, uh, quick intro and, and, uh, pairing for you. Sure. Yeah. I'm Ryan McQueenie. I, uh, am a CFO consultant. So I work with early stage companies, uh, in helping them create strategies to raise money. Um, so, and then my pairing would be springtime and baseball, softball. Uh, just, you know, there's nothing like, you know, April and May when there's just sports on, you get to sit outside and have a beer or cocktail and just like kind of watch games. Uh, that to me is like super relaxing and just fun times. Cause uh, especially with my kids playing right now. So that's awesome. You have a team, a professional team that you follow. Yeah, I would nationals. So, there uh, go. And, then, and then for softball, I'm a big college softball fan for Virginia tech. So that's where I went as you can kind of see, but nice. Um, they're, they're ranked three in the country right now. Nice. Wow. Yeah, the, the Nats are, are not ranked very well no, right now. They are not. But uh, a lot of season left. A lot of season left. Um, perfect. All right. Let's uh let's transition here into uh the, the main topic. Let's dive in. As I mentioned, we're gonna be talking about all things startup equity on today's episode. Um, and we we strategically, you know, selected our two guests today as each brings a particular insight from each side of the negotiating table. Uh, Ryan, you know, you've you obviously sat in the seat of a CFO and advisor for you know multiple startups at different stages, seed, Series A, beyond. Uh, Nate, you know, you've actually sat on both sides of the table. You've you've been on the receiving end of startup equity and as an employee, and then also as a startup founder, have had to determine how to slice up the pie for your first, second, third hires, and so forth. And so, um, let's jump on in. Um, I'll start with you, Ryan, and and maybe just you know for our audience and in, in basic layman terms, can you kind of explain a little bit more about how you know equity works at, at large, and then we can dive a little bit deeper. Yeah, so equity in its purest form is just the ownership stake of the company. Um, there are different ways you can own a company. One through common stock, which is kind of the lowest. Uh, on the capital stack. And then you have preferred shares, which generally has some money tied to it and they get a preference over common shares. So in some sort of exit, they would get paid first uh, unless certain thresholds are met and then everybody gets paid at the same time. Um, you know, in in creating a capital structure, there are um, uh, Various different things you have to figure out. One, how are you going to compensate your employees as you hire them, creating a an equity program for them, what it looks like. There are various standard ways to do it. Y Combinator is definitely one that most people go to. Uh, and then as you're having uh, investors uh, write checks and invest in your company, you want to have it so it's pretty standard. Anything that's not standard gets like 
a little bit more scrutiny than if you're following a standard. So uh, in a simplest form, like I said, equity is just an ownership stake in the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you reference that Y Combinator, kind of like template, um, is there any like uh, like a general kind of rule of thumb of, you know, when you're looking at startups for their maybe first 10 hires, you know, don't exceed 10% of the equity pool or are there are there specific uh, ranges that that come to mind when we're, we're thinking about different sizes of a startup's evolution? Uh, yeah, usually it's like so co-founders are different and fall out of this. So if you have co-founders, you would split up the equity kind of at the earliest stage. And then as you add employees, generally, it's about a 10 percent of the outstanding equity at any one point in time. Um, that's that's the general rule. It can vary from that you know, up or down a couple percentage points, but generally speaking, it's about 10%. And then there's, there are various different um, standards out there for who gets what level of equity. And generally it's, you know, it's more on the, on the executive side. So there are executive compensation studies you can purchase to make sure you align with whatever the standard is. Are you series A, series B, series C, you know, what is your revenue? Uh, are you pre-revenue? And so you have various different um, factors you can consider as you as you you know issue these equity instruments to to your employees. And then there are you know general rules for you know the non-executive employees too. So and you try to design programs where positions and titles get similar equity across. So there's no you know inequity across the board. I think one thing just for those who are really new to it, like the difference, um, a question I get a lot is like sort of the difference between options and actual stock, right? Because you're yep. not, mm-hmm. when you're getting equity, you're not actually getting stock in the company just yet. So maybe. True. Yeah. You're getting a st- an option to purchase equity in a future at a specified price that is done by generally a third party valuation firm, unless you're way early. And then it's just whatever the par value is of the stock, which is generally like one one thousandth of a cent so um you know but really it's a right to just to purchase the ownership equity in in the future so you know if you're given an option with a strike price of a dollar and the share price as you go forward is at a dollar you may not exercise because you're not going to make any money it's just cash outlay and cash back but if it goes up to like five dollars in the future you might exercise that because you're you will be in the money at that point and so Obviously, if the stock price goes below the strike price, you're generally not going to exercise because you're not going to pay a dollar to lose 50 cents. So, <laughs> and, and to even get to this point, right, the, on the back end, there's, there needs to be this sort of company valuation, right, um, to determine, I guess, what the, the cost to purchase a share, like what's the company valued at? Yeah. So usually a third party valuation firm will look at your forecasts, your prospects, you know, if you have any revenue, your historical financials, if you have any, and then kind of who your investors are and how much money have you taken in. So generally speaking, the the common share option price will be lower than the preferred price because the rights are less and there's more risk there. So you'll obviously benefit from that. Um, and in general, you, you know, I think most investors and uh, definitely uh, the the uh, founders want the strike price to be as low as possible with while still living within the, the standards of the internal revenue code. So. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's also going to be uh, these specific kind of vesting periods. Is that is that correct? Yeah, the standard vesting period for these options are usually there's a one year cliff, and then it's monthly after that for the for a four year period. So, um, you know, they're not going to give you the options that vest on day one. They want your part of your your um, earning those is to work at the company and stay there. And if you were to leave the company, you have you know unless it's for cause, you, you have 90 days in which to exercise those uh, or they forfeit back into the company pool and they can be issued to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big picture. This is a, a talent retention strategy. Um, yes. You're trying to keep some key folks, especially in those early stages when you maybe don't have as much cash to offer uh, to compete with more you know, larger organizations. You know, this is, this is that negotiating chip that you can, and kind of use your advantage as a, a early stage founder. It also helps al- align people, right? Like we're all trying to build this business. We're all trying to like the, the, it sort of aligns objectives um, because if the company does really well. The, uh, the stock price, you know, that, that option is actually going to be worth something in the future. And as someone who is early at the company, you get to benefit from having participated in that. And that's sort of the, to counterbalance the fact that, right, maybe salary might not be able to, um, meet the the sort of market. Um, so it's a little bit of a way to counterbalance that in addition to being a retention tool. So, so Nate, um, I'd love to hear it from your, your perspective when you, you know, your, your experiences when first going into, uh, you know, maybe negotiating, um, you know, your comp, including, you know, knowing that there's an equity stake um, at play. Uh, can you explain like how some of that went down and, and, you know, was it clearly explained to you from, from the leadership? I'm, I'm always curious to hear how is it communicated during the, like the interview process? Yeah, I've had the chance to sort of be on the employee side of the table a few different times, both like with fang companies and also with startups. Um, I think that even though this is mostly focused on startups, it's worth a small shout out to the fan company RSU structure, because I think that one of the big choices that we don't talk about enough is that employees will need to align their career goals and their ultimately their retirement goals with where they're going to be working. And so if you want to think about it in simple terms, working at a fan company is kind of the closest we have to the 1950s version of that really sure job. Like the RSUs come every six months. They have a pretty defined market value. It may float on the stock market. You're making a bet. It goes up. But the company is going to just give you that cash effectively. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to redeem it. Um, On the startup side, it's a little bit more like looking at yourself and saying, I can make a series of bets, right? I'm making bets. And I'm hoping that, to Ryan's point, that the stock rises in value um, and the equity will be worth more more than my comp over the long term. So... That really shaped my approach, right? Like at a fan company, I was more like, okay, fine. Like, let's make sure I'm at market with the rest of my peers in the company. And the startup, it's a larger conversation. It's what is the valuation of the startup? What is the growth trajectory of the startup? How much confidence do I have in the founders? Because effectively, especially if you're coming in in the first 10 employees, look at yourself like an investor and ask the same questions an investor would ask because you should be getting enough equity that it will matter. Um, and so you should be asking some tough questions about the structure of the cap table. You should be asking about how uh, investors who are already in, maybe at the seed or the A round, view the company. Um, 
And you should be asking about what kind of multiples need to be hit to get to money that matters to you. And so one of the things that stood out to me this week, for example, uh, there's been a lot of talk, and certainly in my in my circles, around inflated valuations and the market getting tougher in the last two, three months. Um, and a graph that really popped that out to me was someone took a bunch of really hot startups, um, graphed their average comp, graphed their average options issue, and said, for the average options issue, which is typically fifty to sixty thousand um, dollars on the face, what would it take to hit a million dollars? So if you multiply it by twenty, what would it take to to get that sort of million dollar home run that uh, a lot of startup employees want to receive? And the answer were ridiculous valuations. Like some of these companies would have needed to hit six hundred billion dollars for that to come true, and they're just not going to. Um, and so I think that that sort of serves to call out the importance of understanding the larger company context in order to make smart decisions about what to negotiate. Because negotiating for a bunch more money on the face doesn't make as big a difference if the multiples aren't there. I think that's a great point. I think um, the other thing that I think about a lot um, is sort of the transparency as well. I can't tell you, I've talked to any number of startups and, and how open or closed they are with answers to those questions. Um, is a big factor yeah. because, right? I mean, if you're not getting the answers, how can you really make an informed decision? And you know, it, it sort of belies what might be some underlying problems in the future. Well, yeah, and it's a transparency is huge. And you know, one of the main questions as an, as an employee to ask is, what is my percent percentage at stake in the company? Because frankly, the number of options means little. Because if you don't know what the total options or what the denominator is, then it doesn't really give you an answer. And the, the companies that are the most transparent around their cap table and how, how what their percentages are the are the ones that are the the kind of the best you know and and going to live up to the transparency as they as they grow. Um, obviously, you can't share every little detail, but you know you can get answers and you can be, make an informed decision. And you know, there's been places in the past where I've had the discussion. And some have said, I'm not going to tell you. And then you just go away and say, this is not for me. Uh, or they've been very transparent and it's not enough. And you have a different kind of discussion at that point. Or you're like, oh, that's great. That's way more than I thought. And so you, you kind of make a decision based on that. And I think transparency is so big in the startup world. And there's so many people that like to hide things and it, or, or at least not tell you. And it, it just, it's a red flag. Hmm. And if you can get to that, percentage point conversation. And if you're happy with the multiples on the table, a good rule of thumb that I like to use is to negotiate for your dilution when you want, like everyone's mm -hmm. like negotiating and they're going to be wondering like, what do I put on the table? Well, what I do is I look at it and I say, look, I'll probably lose 20 to 30% of the value if I'm coming in at a seed or a series A, just in dilution from other people coming in later, if this is successful. Why don't I ask for 20 or 30 more percent on the equity so that I get back to where I started? And I don't actually, like roughly speaking, right? And I don't actually lose traction um, as we go through the growth curve. And I find that that, especially if that is roughly in line with kind of where the band is for your job role, that helps you to argue for a little bit higher spot in the band. Um, and can show that you're a savvy negotiator, right? Like you're someone who's been here before, or you can give the impression that you understand what you're doing. Um, and that can lead to a more productive conversation. Yeah. And, and further to that point, there are some companies out there that may not do that 
right away, but they have a, a program to give you boxcar grants mm-hmm. or plus you up when there's a new round or uh, other ways to kind of mitigate against that dilution risk. You're not going to ever be fully back to where you were just because it's it's hard to do that over time. Even the even investors that that write checks generally from C some from A to B, unless they're going to continue to lead rounds, generally are diluted at some level. Um, so you know, having the the understanding of what they the company does on a historical basis is very important. One of the companies that I work with does boxcar grants every year as it comes as as it relates to the annual increase too. So they give you um, another year worth of of options that then start vesting after the final uh, vesting dates of the ones you already have out there. So just kind of another retention tool to keep you out there, but give you, you know, keep increasing your percentage. Hmm. Yeah. I've seen way too many times, uh, you know, founders or, or, you know, CFOs that are, you know, uh, doing aggressive hiring and recruiting, but just being very vague about, you know, equity and, not, not just kind of deferring those conversations. And I understand you don't need to be so forthcoming in maybe the earlier stages of the of the discussion, but as things evolve and you're getting into you know some final rounds, um, you know the longer that you hold out on that information, it's not going to play to your advantage. You know, just no use in hiding it. Um, figure out what what's what is it going to take to you know to solidify this hire, and if it's not enough, then it's not enough. And I I will say too, like. Um, Ryan, I'm curious to hear on like, th- is there a framework that you advise or, or um, you know, founders kind of play into for those key hires or those different levels within the organization, even though that might be very difficult early stage, but it's like, you know, here's our, you know, senior slash principal folks that we know that we need carve out this kind of, you know, band and then for, you know, mid-level and for junior folks. Is that, is that a, sort of framework that most folks follow? Um, and, and yes and no. I think it depends on the business too, where they are, how many employees they have, what their valuation is, how many options they have available. Um, so, because generally speaking, the, the founders and CEO don't want to go back to the board and say, hey, we need more options. Unless, mm-hmm. unless you're in this like in-between stage and you're printing money and you don't need to go raise more. And then that point you might, uh, you know, add some more options, but generally speak, there's a couple, it's more, that's an HR question. There's some firms out there that you can go buy studies for $10,000 or whatever, and, and have like a framework. There's, as long as you write it out and live within the bands, you're going to be generally fine. I mean, most people aren't going to give like a, a software developer, a junior software developer, a one percentage point in the company. That's just not the way that it works. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to get somewhere between like, 0.1% 0.1% and 0.15%. And that's, there's a general rule kind of there that, that I have experienced and that's how I would advise just based on my experience. But if somebody wants something written out, they're going to have to go pay for a study. I don't, I don't have those. Mm-hmm. I think one of the techniques to stand out in a world where to Ryan's point, you have fairly standard bands, like what he's talking about is absolutely on the money. Like a 0.1% is really standard for a junior developer. Um, you can still stand out by putting a little bit of variance into that equity offer, like say 0.1 or 0.12, and then vary the cash with that and give like what we like to do is we like to give folks a choice. Like if we're at the final stage, you can say, do I want a cash weighted offer or do I want an equity weighted offer? Um, 
And giving that sense of agency can go beyond transparency to actually give someone a sense that they could be more bought in if they wanted to. And giving that choice, I think, has been really... uh, I've seen people's eyes light up when they have that sense of being able to choose. And I will tell you, they don't always choose equity. Like Sometimes folks choose cash. Yeah, I think I was just going to say, uh, Nate, I, the um, when I do the same things, sometimes you know, there's there's life circumstances, right? Like, I don't know, I have to pay the rent and I have to put food on the table, so I'm going to go, you know. So there's right. definitely those things that that come into play, and I think giving people that ability who to to, to choose is great. I, I've done similar things. I'm curious um, when you do have someone who's coming in, and, and maybe they're you know they're a little more senior, maybe they are a principal engineer. You know that this person, you know, whatever their principal. They're going to make a real difference mm-hmm. um, when they ask for more equity. Like my, I, I, maybe it's a loaded question. But I'm curious, like what your thoughts are when someone really is like, "Hey, I, I really want more equity." Um, yeah, I mean, I've been in those those conversations, sort of on both sides. I've been the one asking, and I've because senior product roles can also ask for that. Um, and I right, exactly, and yeah. I've been, you know, the one where like I'm in the hiring team. Um, we're trying to figure out how to land someone. I look at it as a cost benefit, right? Like. If you look at it and someone's saying, I'm really senior and I want another tenth of a percent, or I want another 0.2%. Um, you look at it and say, are they worth a developer? Are they worth two developers? Is that the kind of multiple they're going to bring? Because that's effectively what I'm trading down out of my out of my pool. And if the answer is yes, then maybe you have that conversation. And maybe you say, okay. Like we're going to weight it down a little bit on cash and we're going to give you what you're looking for. Um, and if the answer is no, that actually tells you a fair bit about how much conviction you actually have and where their upside and slope are. But if you look at it that right. way, it helps you to make that trade off because that's effectively what you're doing. Like to Ryan's point, you have a fairly static cap table, right? Like you don't really have a lot of room to just go print options. So you're stealing from Peter to pay Paul. And it, even if you haven't like, met Peter yet, right? Like you don't know who this future developer is going to be. So you're essentially having to say, given the talent bar we've seen coming in across the company, would I be okay with delaying hiring an engineer for six months or a year? Because this person is that amazing. Right. I think that's a really interesting point about the, it's a zero sum game, right? You have, you have a set number of options. And I think a lot of startups I've seen where they sort of get into problems where Maybe they gave out a little too much too right. early to certain people, and now they they can't really attract the person they need um, because they just don't have the the equity to do it, and it's they've put themselves in sort of an unfortunate position. Yeah, that actually becomes like I've seen that firsthand when um, when like companies get later, like Series C and onward, you get into a situation where some of the early employees have sucked up a lot of the cap table, and you're fighting with really big companies now because you're like a 500 person company now or whatever you're you can't really make the we're a 20 person startup pitch anymore right um so you kind of have to put money on the table and it, it just it creates all sorts of downstream issues because you're either going to commit a lot more of your cash budget to pull people in the door or you're going to print options or you're just not going to get the kind of quality of talent that you got when people were like i'm in the first 10 and i make a big bang Hiring the right software engineer doesn't come easy or at an affordable price. As an early stage founder growing quickly, you need strong technical talent without breaking the bank. That's why we created Scale, Hatch IT's flexible recruiting program tailored for startups hiring on a startup budget. 
Whether you're looking to bring on a new head of engineering or a product manager, Hatch has you covered with dedicated support from seasoned tech recruiters at a fixed monthly cost. Take back the time you've spent sourcing through your own LinkedIn connections and let Hatch handle the heavy lifting of recruiting for you. And while you're at it, give your CFO something to smile about when they're no longer paying for high-priced finder's fees. Visit us at hatchit.io to start hiring on your startup budget today. Yep, completely agree. And and sometimes if you really have like a hot, let, let's say you're a company and you're a Series C company and you really need to hire, you realize you need to hire like a really senior person, like a chief operating officer or a chief marketing officer, and you might not have the bandwidth in your stock, you might have to go hat in hand. And I mean, that dilutes everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Who who gives that up? Everybody or just certain investors or, or what? And so, um, you know, having the discipline at the early stage is something that is hard for people to understand, but it's so important because especially if, if it, they're in the money and they exercise those, those options, if they were to leave, there's nothing that you can do about it because they're, they're effectively not in the pool anymore. So sometimes you get lucky and you hire, you know, VPs of sales that last nine months and then all the options go back into the pool or, you know, that happened a few times, right, Mike? Um, so, <laughs> yes. So, I mean, it, it, sometimes you get like, sometimes you don't. And sometimes people, you know, one of the other things, especially early, early stage, pre-revenue, pre-series A, like when you're in a siege stage, is for employees to think and ask about a early exercise option, which is a Section 83B election. It is something that allows you to exercise your options on grant and you can start your long-term gains holding period uh, and from a capital gains perspective. And so that's something that also you can kind of try to negotiate. Most plans allow for that. Some, some don't just because it's, it would set a precedent and they don't want to have that precedent, but other times they do, especially when it's like, you know, one, one thousandth of a, of a cent and you get, you know, 1% of the company, it costs you like $2 to exercise your options. So even if, the company goes anywhere most people aren't really worried about losing two dollars right so i think the the te- that gets into the whole tax thing which is a whole nother i think that's since that's a different the, podcast it, it is <laughs> it's a totally different podcast but it is something i think as um someone receiving the options something i i, I can't i can't emphasize enough like i've gone through it like i was in the dot-com of the 90s and i remember like a year after I filed, you know, after one of the companies I was at went IPO and talking to an accountant and he comes in, and he's like, well, the good news is you're not going to jail. The bad news is you owe a lot of taxes. <laughs> you know, it's like, And, you know, just sort of all of that stuff and understanding some of the tax implications, um, knowing like I like the whole right exercising the options and holding them for a period of time uh, and and understanding what that is. Yeah, it is a whole nother. It's I, I was joking with Tim before the podcast about how like looking at our tax code is like debugging somebody else's code from like high school. It's just, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and if you're going to exercise options, even if they are in incentive stock options and you're an employee, you still should go talk to a tax advisor because mm-hmm. there's instances where you could end up paying, ha- having to pay tax on the exercise. Yes. Um, you know, and so that's important for, you know, that is not something advice, tax advice. I'm not giving it, but like go talk to somebody to figure out what your position is because, there is, there are instances where you could owe a crap ton of money and you don't have cash flow to, to match it. So, um, just something to kind of 
consider too. So yeah, that's yeah, one of the dark secrets of the tax code is that the IRS will charge you for options that have appreciated. They call it the bargain element. And so if you have a dollar options and they've gone up to five, that $4, the IRS sees as income to you, even though you don't see a cent. Um, right. Which is really like, it's it's something that's got deeper issues with the way we allow employees to access equity. I think I get really passionate about this because I don't want to make it harder for people who are trying to build wealth to sort of build that wealth. And I think that that's one of those things in the tax code that actually acts to keep people from getting into equity and sort of building wealth for their families. Yeah. And I yep. think, I mean, a lot of that, ha- I mean, we can, as it is, it's another yeah. podcast, but I think there's historical reasons why that was and who, who was supposed to be getting those options. And then the tech company, you know, tech companies really changed that around and mm-hmm. started giving it to everyone. And that's what really caused a lot of, I, like, I just remember all the stories in the nineties of some of my friends who like thought they were in the money and then suddenly had to sell a lot of shares in order to pay the taxes on the money that they hadn't yet realized. It was like, these like crazy scenarios. It's a circular that. reference. Yeah. So, what what about um you know any other like um options out there for you know for startup founders that maybe aren't looking to divvy divvy up equity up front, but you know it's like profit sharing or or phantoms phantom stock. You know maybe keeping it a little bit more clean until there's a better understanding of what this business is actually capable of. Yeah, um, that, anything that comes that down to that comes down to the equi- the entity structuring. Like if you're a C corp, this is a regular corporation. You're pretty much going to issue stock options. Mm-hmm. You can do restricted stock units, which just are a right in the future, and as and, and they have a vesting period. But then the uh, then the stock is yours after end of that vesting period. Um, the, if you are like a limited liability company, uh, you can do profits interest, where you're only going to give out money if you're on an exit. Um, they would have a vesting period. And generally speaking, I've seen those where you might get like 50% vested and then after, then it doesn't vest anymore until an exit and then you get everything. But if you were to leave the company, you only have that 50%. Um, and so those are different and it's a different structure. Uh, and generally those are done by private equity firms because they have passed through entities throughout their entire structure where you would get a K-1 potentially at the end of the year with like nothing on it because there's no exit. But as an exit happens, um, you you would get like a, a windfall of cash and then have to pay tax in the future. Um, so, it, you know, it just varies. But there's also like hurdle rates that you got to meet and private equity structures are way more complicated than what we're talking about here. Um, again, another podcast in the future. That, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, for for startup equity, I mean, I think it would be very odd to not have an option pool uh, and an option plan. Uh, All of the, there's everything under the sun in the document that you can issue restricted stock units, options, future appreciation rights, all the things like that. But generally speaking, if you're not standard, then people are going to wonder why, Mm -hmm. especially as you go to raise money, like early stage, like seed and you have an option plan. If you have something different when you raise your Series A, the investors are going to be like, "What were you doing? What were you thinking? This isn't what we do." Because the term sheets generally have you have to have an option pool. Here's the pre-money valuation. Here is the options have to be, you know, factored into before I buy my shares. And you know that, and it really comes down to economics and control at that point. And so, but the new investor is not going to be hurt by plussing up the the option pool to get to the total number of options for that 
that total capital. So. It sounds like we have some follow-up episodes here. Um, <laughs> well, real quick, uh, like Nate, um, can you do a quick recap on those, those items that you mentioned that you're, you know, as a, as a, a candidate coming into oh, yeah. an interview process, totally. some of those things that you think uh, you'd want to clarify? Yeah. Like this is like the advice I would give to young Nate, right? Um, <laughs> so you want to first off understand, like, I think Ryan's done a really good job describing what an option is and how it's different from stock. I, you need to understand that to understand anything else. So make sure you sort of read up on the Wikipedia article or re-listen to this podcast and have that solid understanding. And then at that point, you're ready to have a conversation about first, like the equity on the table for you. And then second, you're ready to do your own research and have a larger conversation about valuation, right? Because what you first need to do is say, am I willing to get into the pool and make a bet at all? If I get into the pool and make a bet, is this the right amount? And is this the right startup to make that bet with? Like, those are all things you have to like talk through and understand. And the key factors are understanding like, are your, is your equity benchmarked appropriately for your role? That's fairly transparent. Is the startup at a valuation that you think is reasonable to get to your financial goals? So you have to think about your financial goals. Do I want to buy a house with this money someday? Do I want to sort of buy my vacation home? Do I want to retire on this money? I don't know. But you have to think about what you'd like to do in a best case scenario. And then you have to think about the valuation multiples and say, is it reasonable to think that I could make progress toward that goal, given the valuation that I'm getting in at now, versus what would need to happen for that to unlock? Because the startup will talk a big game. Like I've seen letters that come in that say, wow, imagine us as a $10 billion company. Look how much money you'd make. And they print it in really big font. And you have to sort of walk that back a little bit and say, okay, but what, what's it at now? Like, we don't know what the future holds. What's it at now? And then what is the capital market doing? And what are the valuations going to look like in two, three years? And is that reasonable or not? Do I really buy that this is a $300 billion company in five years? Right. I think that's the thing is like, what makes you think, and this is, I, I've loved having these conversations with founders, like, or, or the hiring manager, like, what makes you think that that, that number that you just quoted me is actually like, what's the plan for getting there? Yeah. Why do you think that that's a reasonable number? And if I buy into that, and, and I can't tell you um, how many times um, it's gone both ways where that number seems really outrageous and I walk away. And other times it seems like it's a really conservative number. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, like they're not trying to sell me on some fairyland. It's actually, this seems pretty achievable. Um, so yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, any words of encouragement for you know Netflix stock owners right now? No. <laughs> I remember Netflix in 2008. This too shall pass. Like they were tanked. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you, you have a whole slew of things, options that are out there to, for the streaming services. So it's mm -hmm. like at some point there's going to be more that, you know, some, something's going to win. Uh, you know, people are still, they lost uh, a bunch of subscribers, but the weather's getting nice. People are going outside. So they're probably, it's probably more of a cyclical thing than a, than a Netflix is having a problem thing. Yeah. But I, I haven't read any of the documents. I haven't seen any of the press releases. But like to me, I mean, especially as you're getting into the spring, late spring and summer, people want to go outside. People have been stuck in their house for two years. You know, it's there. The TV is great, but people want to go do stuff at this point and get out of their house. It's a good so, point. 
Like watch cats jump in and out of cardboard boxes. Yeah, cats exactly. Drinking exactly. <laughs> exactly. bourbon, watching cats jump through boxes. Yeah, outside and outside. outside. while you're skiing. The other piece is stop sharing your Netflix password if you have, because they there are big rumors that they're going to fight this by cracking down on the 100 million shared password accounts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I heard uh, about that as well. Yeah, well, unless you have a family account, then it's okay. Yeah, well, yeah. that's exactly <laughs> It's all within the same household. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, I think this is a good time to, to maybe wrap up and transition into our, our last segment here. Um, We we call this segment round out my career Uh, fun segment where we spin this community wheel behind me. Um, It has topics and questions that are crowdsourced from the hatchpad community. Um, They can range from anything from, you know, compensation uh, to diversity. Um, Let me give this a spin and see what we land on. Right. Ah, oh, so close. Do we have a winner? Leadership. Right. <laughs> That's a good one. Um. All right. Let's go with um. Let's just let's just keep it kind of simple here in terms of some some top traits um of leaders that you've seen uh, be demonstrated within startups that you've worked with in the past. Um. Nate, we'll start with yourself. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're a leader uh, in, in your current uh, startup. What are, what are some of those top traits that you think are, are pretty you know, important for folks to demonstrate in a startup? I would actually draw a line between like a technical and like a business or CEO founder, because I think that you need different leadership traits to thrive in those roles. So yeah. one of the things that made me giggle, I was I think I was saw it on Twitter, was uh, someone was saying that the, the, the key responsibility of the CEO is to make sure there's money in the bank and then to react to everything in Slack with a fire emoji. Um, and I think that that <laughs> speaks to the kind of energy that you need from, from the CEOs. They need to be like the chief energy officer, right? Like they're the energizer bunny. They always have the motivation. Um, and one of those leadership traits that really helps in tough times when you're pre-revenue or when you're just getting started is someone who believes in you, right? And so having leaders who are like high energy like that are, are really compelling. And it's even better when it's paired with a technical founder who isn't necessarily the energizer bunny, but who is the one who will ask you the hardest questions in the room. Um, and so I think that that deep inquisitiveness is another aspect of strong founders that, that I've really appreciated. Nice. Good point. Um, Ryan, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take it in a different direction. I think, I think you have to kind of be more of an authentic person Mm -hmm. also to get people to follow you. You have to have vulnerability. You have to show vulnerability. You have to be able to convey a message and you have to get people to, you know, believe in what you're saying. And if you're always rah, rah, and, you know, not saying that you shouldn't be because the CEO certainly is, but if you're not willing to like, show vulnerability and take a blame for something that mm-hmm. goes wrong instead of pointing fingers and just having the ability to, um, you know, be a real person. Mm. I think you go a long way and people will tend to follow you and run through a wall for you. If you, if you're able to do that, I think the ones that just are always like pointing down on people and saying, do what I do, do what I say. I don't really care. Like that's not going to work anymore, especially with some of the, you know, as the kids, you know, are coming into the working world, in the last five or 10 years, they want to have an ability to understand what they're doing and how it is going to add to the value for themselves, but also to the company. And so 
conveying how what they're doing is adding to the mission is important. Um, and, and again, I think you know authenticity is something that I've been personally working on for the last you know year. And because I I was in a bad place a year ago, and so um, you know it's just something that I've you know spent some time on. And the more and more you are real, I think the more and more people will tend to follow. I mean, that's spot on. I took the words out of my mouth. That's that was actually my answer to to that question maybe six <laughs> episodes ago. But it's it's so it's so true. I I would say also just to kind of kind of compliments with that as well is um, you know having empathy uh, for your team. Like, uh, like you, you brought up a point, right? Like, you know, you, you, you were in a bad place a year ago, um, you know, to, to, to just kind of, you know, be siloed and, and thinking that, you know, it's the business and the business needs to perform well and you're not performing well. So the business is performing well. Um, you need to kind of have that, that humanistic feel of like, you don't know what that person's going through and you might want to just take a minute and understand that. You know, they might be going through something challenging right now. And and if you can't connect with that person on that level, you know, one, you're gonna lose their respect. And then two, you'll you know, you'll probably lose the employee at some point. Um, but uh to 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 disregard empathy as a as a leader is something that will uh, certainly trouble the, the business at large. Yeah, the the other thing I'll add to that is too, is like you've heard in the past, I'm sure everybody's heard, like it's not personal, it's business. Mm-hmm. But business is inherently personal because you're mm-hmm. spending so much time there. And to discount that feeling from people to your empathy point is like discounting the person. And so that just you can't, in my opinion, you just can't discount that. And and people spend more time at work than they do at home in general. And so it's, it is inherently personal work. I think so. echoing all of that. It's not just that authenticity is critical for a leader in a startup environment. It's that an authentic mission for the startup is critical. I know it's been way easier um, for me to have conversations around hiring with the company I'm working at right now in a post-COVID environment because we have a mission that is bigger than ourselves. Like if, if we succeed, it's not just that like everyone at the company and the investors make a bunch of money. It's actually that the world looks different and it looks better. And being able to speak to that in a way that's authentic is actually a hiring edge in today's environment. Mm, for sure. Yep. If I could jump in, I think, you know, the the question was about leadership and I and I think we did a great job of covering like if you're a leader, if you're a manager, if you're a director, and I think Nate sort of hinted this as well, which is that there's there's different leadership, right? You can be if you're an engineer on a team, what does leadership look mm-hmm. like for someone who maybe doesn't have, hasn't been tapped with you're responsible for for leading or managing, right? And so leading by example and looking for, you know, do, you know, things that I look for in potential, you know, future leaders or, or people I'm going to put into leadership positions are, do they do their job? Do they, do they get the stuff done that they need to get done and then look for opportunities to do more are they looking for opportunities to help the other people around them to do more? And when I think about my own career and how I've moved up in my career, it's always been by sort of making myself replaceable, right? Like finding some way to either automate or hire or train someone to do what I'm doing today so that I can work on bigger, more interesting problems. And I think there's some people who don't see it that way, who think, oh, I'm going to be indispensable. And they don't like to share that information or they're worried about sort of managing themselves out of a position. And, and I would say lean into it, right? Like try and figure out how do you move up in an organization by 
making yourself sort of replaceable at the level that you're at. Um, but irreplaceable to the, you know, indispensable to the company in a way, but nobody's indispensable, you know, in the real world. But yeah. I think those are some key qualities for if you're looking to become a leader or if you just want to have some leadership within a team. Cool. Yeah, well said, guys. Um, all right. I think that's a that's a wrap. We'll um we'll close on that note. And um just wanted to say thank you to our guests, you know, Ryan and Nate. Um, super valuable intel for our listeners. Um, anywhere specific that you want to shout out that that these folks can maybe follow you on social. Uh now is your your opportunity. You can uh, haunt my TikTok. I am probably the oldest tech person on TikTok, but um, <laughs> I do a product TikTok um, focused on like cool. thriving and succeeding in tech and uh, people seem to enjoy that one. So that's a fun one. And I'm also on Twitter. What's the, is there a handle? Uh, I think it's Nate B. Jones in both cases. Cool. Awesome. Uh, I just, I have Twitter and I don't really post on it too much, but, uh, I do check it. It's, uh, it's at Ryan McQueenie. I don't, I don't do TikToks, uh, <laughs> other than, other than make my, sure my kids aren't doing something stupid. And, uh, you know, that's about, I have Instagram, but that's really just for my kids stuff. So cool. Well, good stuff. Well, um, we'll go ahead and let uh, Mike go ahead and let that cat out of the out of the box at this point. <laughs> My God. Um, thanks again, guys, for joining us. It's been fun. It's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pair Program. If you'd like to continue the conversation from this week's episode, you can do so with the Hatchpad community. Join us at chat.myhatchpad.com.